Hello, and welcome to Contract From Below. I'm your host, Khan, and with me today, I have the full Contract From Below team. I got Austin. Hello. Ben. Hey. And Tanner. Oh, he died. I, I, I had my mute on. <laughs> Let's start with some just like super simple introductions. Uh, Tanner, when did you start playing and what formats are you familiar with? Uh, I started playing around uh, Cons of Tarkir block when that came out. Um, when I first started playing, it was largely standard. And then me and my friends got into modern. But uh, now I've been just playing commander, which I play almost exclusively now. And then when did you start and what formats do you play? Yeah, uh, so I started playing during Theros block. And I played a lot of modern for a while. I played Red, Green, Tron, and Jun. Although, I eventually switched to just playing Commander, which is what I'm doing now. All right, and with our introductions out of the way, we're going to move on to the main topic here. To give a little bit of uh, context, we're going to start with the recent bannings. So recently, Flash got banned, and Lutri also got banned. So for people who don't know, Lutri is the is it companion. It goes in basically every deck. I think it's pretty clear on the post that the rules committee made as to why it's banned. It's just a 101st card. It goes for free. It takes no slots. Flash is a slightly interesting one. For people who don't know, Flash is blue and one for an instant. It puts a creature from your hand into play, and then you may pay its converted mana cost minus two generic or have it get sacrificed. If you combo with the card Proteant Hulk, you win the game on the spot. It's instant speed, very fast, hard to interact with the combo. I think one thing's to be said about the otter more than anything. It would be one thing if it was just a 101st card, but it's also a very powerful 101st card. It gets around a counterspell. It gets around any sort of powerful instant sorcery your opponent's playing because you also just get one. I, I think there's a lot to be said about just the power of it in itself, not aside from the fact that you always have it. And it has flash. True. If it, if it was just, you know, a one with nothing on a creature, it would be pretty bad. How do you two, Austin and Tanner, feel about the Flash Band? As I play a little more competitive commander than Tanner does, I think I have a little more experience playing against Flash. And that being said, it is kind of just an oppressive combo, effectively. It's so hard to interact with because in the case of let's say one person was already trying to combo off and everyone used their counter magic up in that scenario just in response to this person's combo being countered you can just flash in your protein hulk sack it off immediately and win the game at instant speed it's a hard thing to just fight effectively uh in addition the best version of the Protean Hulk deck was able to combo off at instant speed. So any disruption past the Hulk dying had no effect on the game state because the combo player could continue to just go off and there's nothing to do at that point. Yeah, so um, to preface this, I don't play uh, CDH. However, you know, from the way it's been described of how oppressive this is, I, I think banning it is definitely the right case and as well it seems like flash isn't a card that's normally played in many casual decks which is important because you know if you're banning it for a small you know what the rules committee claims to be a small portion of the overall player base it's important that it's not affecting that larger more casual play group whereas if i think they ban the hulk instead that's probably a a big stupid creature card that sees a lot more play uh, in the casual scene and then how do we so i've heard some people talking about you know, it's oh, it's an, it's going to be so hard or difficult to have the one ban list work for both CDH and casual EDH. What do you guys think of that? I think for the most part, casual EDH is going to be determined a lot more around the rule zero of the specific playgroup, and I think the ban list should be specifically almost reserved for CDH, since if a particular playgroup doesn't like playing against Avison. Uh, you know, they could just say, we don't, we actually are going to ban that card because we think it's too good. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. I, I do un- understand um, in like the rules committee's opinion why the ban list maybe should be 
heavily weighted towards casual versus CEDH if CEDH is as small of a group of players as they claim it to be? I think at the same time, it's important to remember that there are, like, it's not that Avacyn doesn't have an answer. It's just that the people aren't playing it. Like, like you can just cast Exile Avacyn and she dies for one mana. The issue is that the people who are complaining about Avacyn don't play that card and they would rather just ban it rather than play the cards that you need to deal with it. I mean, I think that uh, the idea that OCDH is such a small portion of the playgroup of the player base that it should just be ignored is like kind of, I don't know, like I don't think it's a great idea because like even if it is only 5% of the player base, there are millions of EDH players, like a lot of EDH players. 5% of that is still probably like a couple million players. You know, that's that's 2 million players, you know, if there's 20 million EDH players in total. And I think that's not an unreasonable number. So I think that they should be at least attended to in some capacity. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they shouldn't be completely ignored, even if they do only comprise a small portion of the player base. And I think, you know, the recent flash banning, I think that's kind of maybe, you know, the rules committee uh, being willing to to cater to that group of players a little bit more than they have been. For sure, because flash wasn't seen casual play. It's exclusively a card played by competitive decks that are trying to combo off in between other really degenerate combos. We've also said our opinion on Rule Zero, how we aren't really fans of it ourselves, but it does have its place in casual tabletop playgroups. And at that level of casual, I understand its place. I actually am kind of coming around on Rule Zero. I used to be far more opposed to it. This is kind of a funny side tangent. I think my recent uh, tangent with modding has sort of turned my stance on Rule Zero, because I think the ability to customize a format is actually very powerful, and I think it opens up a lot of opportunities for players who might otherwise get really frustrated with a format. My, my big gripe with the, the Rule Zero argument, that if there's something that you know is destroying your playgroup you don't like, just Rule Zero it, is that that only is applicable in your small playgroup. So if I wanted to go to like my local game store or a GP or something, you know, that's meaningless. And suddenly my deck is just maybe at some huge disadvantage because I'm not running something that, you know, me and my friends decide was too powerful, but, you know, in comparison to everyone else's wouldn't be. Sure. But at the same time, the people who are doing rule zero bannings, people who are saying, oh, I, I think, Again, Avacyn is too powerful because she gives all your permanents indestructible. Those people aren't really going to GPs. It, it is just them and their friends at the lunch table playing magic, and they are frustrated with this card, and so they're all just in agreement. They're not going to play it. And I, I think there is something to be said about that and how it can allow personalization of the format between playgroups. I mean, you say that, though. I remember the first time, uh, I don't know if, I think, Tanner, you were there with me? When we first went to our LGS to play EDH, and they had like a some rule or like when back when they had like some leagues for it. At the end of the league, someone could ban a card, and then that card was banned for the next week. And I remember when we went there, the card that the previous winner of the league banned was Soul Ring. And I was like, wait a second, I'm not allowed to play Soul Ring. It's in all of my EDH decks. So I had to replace them all with basic lands. It was really awkward and it was really confusing because in the middle of a game I played Soul Ring and they're like, oh, that's banned. And I was like, what? I mean, go- I don't think Soul Ring is the type of card that needs to be banned. I think that's kind of silly. I mean, yeah, so like ultimately they, they got rid of that rule at our LGS. They don't, they don't have that set up anymore because that was the problem with Rule Zero is like it, when someone new shows up to the playgroup, it's totally worthless. I feel like the other thing is uh, people are saying like, oh, they should be two separate ban lists and stuff like that. I think that that's actually not even close to an issue because the cards that it, people in CEDH have accepted that this is a fast format. No one's going to ask for Soul Ring or Dark Ritual or Mana Vaults to be banned. Like, yeah, those are fast mana accelerants, but it's a fast mana format. People it's, the same, it's the same mana accelerant that you'd have access to in Legacy. It's just we're all restricted to singletons. 
Yeah, exactly. And the cards that are powerful in CDH see like no play casual. Like no casual player is playing Demonic Consultation. That's actually the one I was going to bring up as well. It's such an all-in card that you can't really afford to be playing it as along with like any sort of stompy creatures or whatever. You're you're going all in on the combo, you're exiling your deck, and then you're winning the game. Yeah, you can't you can't consultation for value. It's just not it's like not possible. I love those value consultations where you untap and use the game. Although I wouldn't be I personally wouldn't prefer to have two separate ban lists for CDH and and, and casual because even though you're saying, you know, there there are cards that don't see any casual play but only see play in the cdh scene i feel like it's too hard to define exactly where the boundary lines between a, a casual deck and a cdh deck because if i just have like a really high power level you know edh deck that i would play in this play group that's you know something that would well like could that stray into cdh and if so would i have to take out certain cards or you know where, where would that fit in to go off of that point what cards would be banned in casual but not banned in, in competitive I mean, Profit Crucifix, right? Profit Crucifix is, you know, banned in, for casual reasons and never saw any CDH play and no CDH player has ever complained about it. Yep, true. Actually, that's a very good point. I didn't think about that. It is five mana. It is very powerful, but it only lets you cast your creatures with Flash. Sure, it lets you untap all your creatures and lands. Seedborn Muse is already a card. And it's not nearly as powerful as Prophet of Crucifix, but it still has the same type of power. And it's not played in CDH at all. I mean, it seems like fringe play. I think actually in the update to the CDH staples list, it just, Seaborn Muse just got added to the fringe playable category or like just barely made it on. So like, I guess Prophet of Crucifix maybe would have seen some play, but like not really. An interesting banning from a little while ago was Paradox Engine, though. What about that one? I actually, I feel like Paradox Engine is a little too powerful. I, I think Urza is already a very powerful magic card, and allowing it to go infinite with one card is, I think, just too strong. I don't know. I feel like Paradox Engine stifles creativity. Because when you think of a card, so if you think of a card like Soul Ring. It's super ubiquitous because it's powerful ramp and it's colorless and every deck needs ramp. There's no deck that does not want a ramp. So that's why Soul Ring is in every deck, right? But Paradox Engine is a storm engine and it's colorless, which means any deck that wants a storm engine can play it all of a sudden, regardless of color. Because now if you want to play a storm deck, you got to be in blue, probably. Or, you know, I guess maybe Zana is like mono red, but for the most part, you're in blue. No, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. I think by banning it, you're you're inhibiting a lot of creativity that could be explored. Like, you know, people aren't coming up with funky, weird, Golgari storm decks with Paradox Engine. But at the same time, how are you going to stop people from just jamming Urza and then Paradox Engine and then casting their library? Yeah, but that's a that would be a CDH deck, and Urza's a four drop, and a four drop in EDH is already dubious to cast. I suppose. I don't know. I, I think Paradox Engine has a very powerful text box, and while I, I usually don't like things being banned, I, I sort of understand where the rules committee was coming from, but at the same time, I would rather see things be playable rather than having a ban. So why don't we why don't we uh, move into a slightly different topic and talk about the banning philosophy of the rules committee and Watsi, which are very different. Which approach do you do you guys prefer? Let's start with a uh, Tanner. Sure. So I know one thing with the EDH banning committee is uh, one of their points is they want to ban anything that uh, is not meant to be brought over from say or, or cards that were designed in mind of of one format like like a 60 card standard or modern format being brought over to commander not being compatible which is an example of why like the otter is banned right because in edh the, the clause that you would need you know is immediately uh fulfilled just by having a commander deck but then uh i think the the go-to card against that is something like necropotence where you have a, a much higher starting life total in edh that's still not banned 
So although that's a point of their banning philosophy, it seems like it's not followed through on in uh, instances like that. You know, I think banning the otter is the correct choice, but then, you know, like why is a card like Necropotence, uh, you know, legal? I, I, I think Necropotence is almost the staple of the format in itself. I, I think, I don't know. I, I would argue that Necropotence does have its downsides. And when you play a Necropotence, the, the table can team up on you and punch you to death. And at that point, your Necropotence doesn't really do anything for you. I was going to say that pretty much the same thing. Because sometimes you just know someone has Necropotence in their deck, you will punch them as, as just a, effectively as a state-based effect. This person is to be punched. I'm very familiar with this. I, I, I do I'm play, sorry. I play Necropotence in my competitive EDH list, and as a result, I'm constantly assaulted during the combat steps. It's simply because, yeah, this guy needs his life total, and everyone else is going to combo off with infinite damage, so I guess we'll just decrease the usefulness of his Necropotence. And honestly... For that reason, I kind of like Necropotence because it influences the game in that way. Like, you're able to play around it by beating up on that person. But with, like, Flash, how do you bully the Flash player, right? Like... Turn one Grafdigger's Cage is about it. Yeah, sure, but you play Grafdigger's Cage and it gets countered and then you go, cool, I guess I don't untap. Or I, I just don't tap my lands ever. Yeah, and I don't think Tanner was uh, in, insinuating that Necropunks needed to be banned in any way. It was just mentioning no. that it's a yeah, philosophy. It's a, very, it's a very powerful card that doesn't really work with the translation. Sort of like Sarah Ascender, honestly. Right, I was just bringing that card up because it seems to go against that, that claim of one of the, the philosophies behind banning cards. So then Watsi doesn't... So the way they ban that's a little different is not necessarily just for more fun per se but they also ban specifically for tournament play deck diversity and once in a while to shake up the format like with the splitter twin banning i that personally bothers me a lot is banning to shake up a format is like just like deleting a staple deck to to cause a mix-up is really bad (laughs) i'm gonna agree with you there that really bothers me from a player perspective imagine being a you know a twin player and then being learning that your i don't know thousand dollar investment is down the drain because watsy wants to mix up the format and now you're just your deck is unplayable yeah i mean magic the magic decks are are huge monetary investments and you know if you invested like you said a thousand dollars in a deck or something and then it just gets these you know taken away from you not for any you know meta reason but just because they wanted to shake up the form because it was you know appearing that that would definitely upset me and so I, I definitely don't agree with that as being a a point to to ban cards on because there's obviously a difference between the playability of a card and its monetary value but at the same time you are making an investment into the game when you buy a card for example people who bought okos they did lose money when it got banned in basically every format. True. I think the difference with Oko versus like the Splinter Twin, for example, that was Oko, you know, was just taking over, you know, every, every format and showing it where Splinter Twin wasn't like the, you know, the most dominant piece of the meta. It was something like, what, like 8% of the meta at the time. I think from a, if you're talking from a monetary investment point of view, someone could, could foresee something like Oko being banned and choose not to invest invest in it, where something like Splinter Twin, there might not have been that foresight that, okay, this is a card that would get banned. I better not invest in that deck. For sure, for sure. But do we really want to be in a situation where people, when considering buying cards online, like when you're on Card Kingdom, do you really want to be thinking, ah, like, is this card going to get banned if I buy it? Like, that's such a bad place to be and and i don't think magic is in a good position when wizards is just printing these cards and then as a full like afterthought being like whoops well i guess we'll ban it like i guess the otter is just too good for this format well the otter is a little different because like you know they inform the rules committee ahead of time so no no one bought that for their eh deck which is nice and 
you know, I, I definitely just dis- dislike the way that they're um, they're sort of printing these super push cards and just banning them away because they're so expensive, you know. So then, do we prefer the rules committee's banning philosophy? I'd say, so for me, somewhat, just because there have been problems with the wizards. Uh, method of banning things before as we have just discussed all right so looking looking at the looking at the band of restrictless right now for edh itself is there something on here that we would really want to see added or removed i still want paradox engine removed honestly i think it it added a lot of really cool interesting deck ideas and it required more build around than i think they gave it credit for I don't think Leovold deserves to be on the ban list. You know, I'm I'm coming around to him being on the ban list. I I used to think that same thing too. I don't know. I liked that it was like a cheap CDH deck that people could build into, and casual players were just building CDH decks basically because it wasn't expensive. But I think ultimately, even in the CDH context, they wouldn't the CDH metagame wouldn't like it very much because the the optimal way to beat Leovold is with your own Leovold, which causes a little bit of like inbred meta jank, you know? That is true. But now that we have both Notion Thief and is it Narset? Uh, yeah, Narset's the one that stops people from drawing additional cards. Yeah. Now that we have both of those already in the format, sure it's not a legendary creature, so you don't always have it. But now that we just have more of those effects that prevent people from drawing cards, oh, we also have the card Alms Collector. So that's three cards that help prevent people from drawing excessive amounts of cards. So because of that, Leovold's become a little redundant, I'd say. And because of that, he doesn't necessarily have to be on the ban list anymore, I'd say. I would argue that the power of being able to put him in your command zone is bannable. Like, I, all those cards are non-legendary, which means that you do have to draw them and, as well as a wield effect. And with Leofold, you just need, like, Windfall or turn uh, Time Twister, sorry. What about all the, the jank stuff on the ban list? And, like, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about World Fire... Sway of the stars. Sway of the stars. Like those really massive spells that just cause nonsense. I will say I'm not sure about World Fire because you can't always just float the little bit of extra mana it is you need to just, oh no, my opponent's life totals that were now one is now zero. As well as... Sway of the Stars is just kind of dumb, I'd say, because it almost restarts the game. People will have the same argument towards Cyclonic Rift, as it is a way that typically will off-put your opponents and just slow down the game in a lot of cases. But this completely resets the game to effectively turn zero. There aren't really many ways to get around that, and I think it just severely slows the game down. When you were saying cards that are a bit silly, I was more expecting the card like Coalition Victory, which is very interesting. I think that's an obvious unban. Like Coalition Victory is clearly not a good Magic the Gathering card. It's funny. It, there's a hundred different ways to beat the card. I mean, it folds to Ghost Quarter, one removal spell, anything really. Like it, it, everything under the sun can beat Coalition Victory. I think it's just really funny. That's a I feel like is an obvious unban. I feel like with these big wacky cards, you know, they're these really big spells that I kind of think are similar, like expropriate. But the issue is they don't necessarily give you the win or put you in a significant position of, of leading the game. They, you know, they, like Austin was saying, they kind of just restart everything. But at the same time, they're these big, really fun, kind of wacky spells that I feel like don't, you know, the, the, the place you would want those to be or the place those seem to naturally belong would be 
in EDH. I'm not strict like strongly one way or the other on those spells. I think, however, if there's one card I would really argue to take on take off the banning list would be Iona. I feel like that's just the silliest card to be on there because it's just like some fun, stupid, you know, card, but it's well, it's like eight mana or something, and it's very, you know, it can be dealt with really easily because you can counter it, and if your color gets named, if it resolves, there's still, you know, three other players at the table, two other players at the table who can, might be able to deal with it. Yeah, and it also doesn't deal with what's on the board. So, like, no. if someone just has a, a, some other large creatures and they're attacking you, you're eventually going to have to block. Even if you've named, you know, red and you're up against three mono red players, they might just all have big dragons in play. You can still lose. It doesn't actually win the game. Yeah, I don't think that's a ban-worthy card, really, in any sense. I'd like to bring up an interesting topic here. Uh, how do you guys feel about a difference between banned commanders and the commander ban list? Because I'm looking here at Rofleus, Lanawar Emissary, and I feel like he's definitely a card that I would like to see banned as a commander, but in the 99, he seems just fine. So... Do you guys feel that there should be potentially banned commanders? Like, what if you had Leobold in the 99? I feel that could be a possibility, but at the same time, it can make the game a little more complicated in having these two separate ban lists for the same format. In a similar train of thought, though, is Gristlebrand, who is very powerful in the 99 because you can reanimate him really easily but he's not great in the command zone. I say I, I understand the 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 desire to have just one uh ban list for you know things there's no fuzzy bands, there's no band in, in the ninety nine or band as commander. It's all one elegant list. Which I like that for the sake of simplicity, because if you're a new player coming into this, it can be kind of overwhelming, I would think, to have these cards that are on certain ban lists for certain reasons but not others. But then, you know, I think there are like some cards, for instance, like uh, Lutri, for example, who's all out banned in the format. But I think that card might be fun as a commander in the 99 of some deck. And so maybe it you know, should just be banned as a companion. I think that I like the, the one list. I think that once you start adding the band as a commander, band as a companion, band as a partner with this partner, like it, it becomes like if you start adding like three lists, four lists, like it starts to get too confusing. And I think that ultimately, Nothing, none of those cards stops a player from doing a specific play style or something that they might want to do. Like, yeah, Gristlebrand, obviously, I think should not be in the 99, way too powerful, would be format warping. But then as a commander, you, him being on the ban list means that players are losing out on playing him as a big mono-black demon that has a game-winning ability. But you can already play a big mono-black creature with a game-winning ability. Kirk is in the format. Razaketh is in the format. Like you, you can, can do also, those. You can also essentially get his effect by playing Necropote. It's not like the effect is what's the issue. That's also true. So and I think Raphalos is the same way. As a commander, way too consistent, too much mana, I think is too powerful. In the 99, it's a very powerful ramp spell, but I don't know, you can play other powerful ramp spells. You're not losing out on anything. I'd say overall I'm a fan of just the one... Uh, single bandless for the sake of simplicity. At the end of the day, this is a game we play, and we would like more players to be interested in it. And to keep these kind of bandless simplistic, it just allows the introduction to these formats to be just a little easier. So moving on to our main topic, in defense of combos and stacks, we're going to talk about the fact that almost all of us are stacks players in some capacity. <laughs> And we're all fine with stacks and we're all fine with combos in our play group. This I'll admit, four people playing stacks all at the same time in the same group is awful, though. Well, okay. Yeah, but that doesn't happen that often. <laughs> yeah, whenever there's multiple stacks players in a single pod, that can be a little rough. But, I mean, I mean, the whole point is you want to be able to end the game in some way, right? And, and being able to do that through a... A stacks lock, I think, is a perfectly acceptable way. It's basically a combo, but usually with permanence on the board. Right. If you can demonstrate you've got some kind of lock where, you know, inevitably, if you were to keep playing this out, you would just eventually win. 
you know, I, I think that's that's fine. You know, that's equivalent to just having a, some kind of combo finish as long as it ends the game and people agree that when that's been demonstrated, it ends the game. Yeah, for sure. I, I think most people will acknowledge once they've been defeated and once you get them in a position where it's like, you're no longer able to cast spells, they, they can kind of go, okay, I, I guess I'll just scoop it up. And that's very similar to any sort of like ad nauseum or demonic consultation combo because you are still getting a confession from three players. Now let's talk about combos and stacks in the setting of high-power EDH, like what we're typically playing here. What does a high-power combo or stack slot look in compared to a CDH or casual one? I think Ben said it pretty well. Usually when I see a stacks lock in competitive commander, it usually ends up forming a situation where most players, except for the one performing the lock, has come into a situation where they are no longer able to play the game. In um, high power, it can look similar, but it more typically, in my experience... It is shaped to be just strictly oppressive. It's not necessarily a, oh, you can't cast spells or do anything for the rest of the game. It can be in situations more similar to how I play in everything that you're trying to do will always be answered for and you will not get out of this. I I think a very good way to vocalize this, Austin, if you don't mind, is in casual, you're establishing essentially the one-two punch where it's like, and now you're out of the game. Where in high power, it's a lot more of a toolbox where you're, a sp- if you're going one for one with their threats and they just cannot outcompete you. And eventually they are in a situation where there is no coming back from this. You might as well just concede. Thank you. That was a very a much better way of putting it than I, I did. You are, I'd say, the most versed in stacks of our playgroup. What can I say? I love not playing Magic the Gathering. So something like that would be probably like a forbid lock or something where you have enough mana to cast, enough mana and card advantage to cast forbid and buy it back three, four times a turn cycle and basically your opponents don't get to play as opposed to you've, actually destroyed all their lands and made it so they cannot play lands anymore. Like, hard, hard lock them out. Okay, so let's talk about some stacks cards that we actually do play in our playgroup. So I know, you know, we play the regular orbs, winner and static, uh, along with stasis, contamination. How do you guys usually deal with those cards? Because I feel like that's one of the biggest problems that people have with stacks, is they feel like they can't beat it. You know, they're like, oh, well, if I can't untap my lands, then, you know, how am I going to play my six-mana creature? And there's no way for me to get around this. I think Nature's Claim and, like, Disenchant effects are severely underrated in most decks. And I, I, I think playing those will free you out of those locks really well. Because essentially, if your opponent has a Winter Orb, you can allow them to only untap one land, and on their end step, you nature's claim it, and then you fully untap. And that's the point you gain advantage over your opponent. And I think cards like that, while also enabling you to do that, have the flexibility of also answering other really huge threats in the format, like, you know, Necropotence or KCI. Or like doubling season even, you know, just a lot of high CMC big enchantments. I, I honestly believe that the solution to most situations is just playing more removal. And as a result, uh, our games usually go past two hours because we're all just uh, playing like through, you know, like 20 plus removal spells. And we could probably do with more combos in our playgroup, to be honest, just to make the games go a little faster. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I think any of us has built an actual combo deck. Uh, most of my decks tend to have an obscene amount of removal interaction. Specifically, I have a Scorpion God deck that is strictly built around just making sure that no creature stays on the battlefield and anything I can answer for will be removed from the game. I think I'm of the philosophy where you know, if I'm building a deck, I, I think it's important that that deck has some kind of 
combo finish or like stacks lock in it, although that may not be the main focus, just so it has the ability to be able to finish games. And I think that's really the most important role of, of, a, of a combo. People say, oh, well, combos going infinite is too powerful. You know, I think just the whole point is, you know, I don't need to structure a deck around doing that. I just need a deck that can actually be able to end a game if, if I need it to end. I, I, I want to agree with you, Tanner. I think it's very important to display to the table that you have won the game. Like, a lot of the times commander games can go, like, it's five or seven plus turns after. It's very definitive after who's won. But by playing a, a combo, you're able to just display, hey, like, the game's over, I won, let's scoop it up. I feel like I've run into this so often back when I played Lantern Control in Modern, where, you know, people wouldn't, they wouldn't scoop to it, even though they would have to have, you know, exactly seven answers to my lock in a row on top of their deck with no lands or non-answers in between to even have a chance at winning the game. And they would, they would play it out. They'd be so stubborn and just play it out. I think that knowing when to scoop is like, it's a thing to learn. And I think it's a very useful thing. I think it also allows you to become a better player because by acknowledging when you have lost the game, you're better able to determine threats, if that makes sense. Like, I, I think if you become more aware of your vulnerability as a player, I think you're better able to respond to threats within the game. A skill that I think I have to work on, and I'm sure many players do still, is just threat assessment. Usually when I end up, I don't know, countering a spell or removing, some, removing something, it's, it's usually because it's a quite obvious threat to either the table or myself. That, or I made a mistake and I effectively wasted my interaction. Yeah, I can definitely say being a blue player, it's, it's, it can be very difficult to gauge uh, certain cards on the stack, whether you know, they should be countered or, you know, if something scarier is going to come along because, you know, in hindsight, it's always like, Oh, well, of course, you know, I, I took this bait or something and then someone else played something and that cost us the game. And yeah, a big part of that is being able to gauge how powerful cards are or uh, yeah, assess threat level. Yeah. I think most of the games that I feel like I win against you in particular, especially with your, you have a mono blue J stack. I feel like when you counter the wrong spell and you tap out, that's like, the biggest chance if I'm playing a non-blue deck to just take the entire game right there. And I feel like people don't realize that sometimes, even even excluding combos and stacks, there's a lot of cards in this format that are such massive threats that if you don't answer them, you lose. Something that comes to mind is Omnath. If you can sneak Omnath onto the board, um, you usually win the game. Which one? There's three. <laughs> yeah, I was right. going to go with the red-green one that uh, makes five fives. But uh, honestly, yeah, sure. Any of them are probably game-winning. Like They're all really good. There are certain cards that are, like you said, you have very obvious uh, counters or you know, counter-worthy or removal-worthy cards, like, like an Omnath. There, sometimes there are cards that are much more subtle. Yeah, yeah. Like, sometimes it is correct to counter the lightning graves. Also, one of the important things about interaction that not enough players take into account is the CMC of your interaction. Because I've seen, like, jank five-mana kill spells or, like, six-mana, like, that green desert twister card or whatever that, like, sure. six-mana destroys a permanent. They're like, it's so versatile. But, like, the CMC of those are so bad. Like, one of the best cards, I think, for getting out of any stacks lock and I don't think any of us actually play the card, is a Force of Vigor. Force of Vigor is very good. It was yeah. too permanent. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's green, green, two for an instant that destroys two artifacts or enchantments, but you can exile another green card from your hand to cast it for free. So for just the cost of two cards and zero mana, you can get rid of two things on the board. And it's just, it's so efficient and so powerful. You can hit that stasis, you can hit that winter orb or, you know, doubling season or whatever else. It's, it's just such a powerful card. And because of the lack of mana you need to cast it, it's just too efficient to pass up, I think. I think with Force Vigor, you're especially right in the case of a stacks lock where you're limited on the amount of mana you have to you being able to, 
to cast like a spell for free like that. If I can go on a, a very brief tangent here, uh, I've recently found myself cutting Mystic Confluence from a lot of my decks. I, I used to play it and pretty much all of my decks that played blue, but I've, I've realized that although the card is very powerful, I, I think paying five mana for a counterspell is actually a little too obtuse. But I, I think by doing that, you expose yourself to just losing a counter war there. Yeah, it was definitely a card uh, I was on the fence about running for a while. I am running it now in my, my deck, but um, I am a fan of modal, modal cards like that, though. Because you can just pay five to draw three on someone's end and then untap, which is pretty good. Yeah, that versatility, it, it really can't be under or overvalued. But at the same time, it feels really bad when you pay that much mana into a counter spell and then... Because your counter spell gets countered, you have no ability to respond. You can't hit it up with a spell or a negate or anything like that. I feel like Austin and I have been a, in a similar argument about Insidious Will, which I, I personally, I play, I play Insidious Will, I play Mystic Confluence. I also play Spelljack, which is a six mana counter spell, because I love jank counter spells, and I think modal spells, which Spelljack is not, but I think modal spells. I don't know. I don't think that even even at higher mana cost, I think that they're so versatile and useful that it's like it's too good to pass up. Although at the same time, I don't play Is It Charm, so like, I don't know. I play a lot of blue because I play a lot of decks with far too many colors. But because of that, I play very low to the ground counter spells. I'll I refuse to play counter magic that cost four or more mana unless there's a very serious upside to me playing it like force of will force of will or spell swindle for example those are very powerful five mana counter spells for different reasons respectively but still spelljack is just six mana (laughs) so much mana but if you spelljack like an expropriate, you got to counter the expropriate, and then you get to cast an expropriate for free. Do you think of it's just like that's like ten for one in your opponents? It is, but it's six mana you have to hold up. There's no way of getting around it. I don't know if I've ever actually resolved the spelljack. I've had it in like four or five different decks. Yeah, you keep trying to play it, and it never pays off. Spelljack, you guys today. Mark my words. <laughs> So let's move on to one of our other sort of subtopics here. Why have combos and stacks locks? Why, why would anyone put it in their deck or even just allow them in their play group? Well, we did mention how our games tend to last sometimes two or even more hours. And we could really use some more combo decks in our specific play group. And that's because we... <laughs> Despite what was said about stacks and enjoying watching people not play the game, at the end of the day, we do enjoy playing this game and we want to have as many games as we can. So the best way to do that, the best way to fit more games into a session is by having ways to end them. Combo decks specifically allow the game to end a lot faster than otherwise. Yeah, I think it would just be, it wouldn't be very fun if, if nobody had any definitive way to end a game other than just, you know, combat damage or, you know, something like that. Because we all just are, have a stalemated board state where we each have an equal amount of creatures or something. You know, there's just no, there's nothing I could just top deck eventually and draw into that would likely win me the game. Whereas if I have like some combo as like a plan B, I, I could eventually draw the pieces and, and break something like that and end the game. So I, I think I think it is important just to, yeah, be able to end games in a somewhat timely manner. And I think that there's not that much difference between dramatic reversal Isochron Scepter combo and playing like Perforos and then an Avengers Endicar to dome the whole table for like 30. You know, there's non-infinite combos that are like two cards together that basically win the game, even though they don't actually deal infinite and they don't actually say win the game on them. Yeah, for sure. I think... Finite damage combos are underrated in Commander. I was looking at one of my decks. I play a uh, Corvald Commander list. And I was calculating out how much damage I can do with my combos. I have a two-card combo that deals about 250 damage. 
And I, I think having something like that is definitely not to be undervalued because you can just finish off the game with that, like, you know, rather than just playing big BP creatures. You want to explain how you do 250 damage with two cards? Uh, you don't want me to just let the audience figure it out. Uh, no, you play a scape ship with the Dryad of the Islian Grove on board, and you put three copies of Valakut in play with a Valakut, Pasuva, and Thespian stage. And then uh, you fetch about 10 fetch lands, and then they all enter as copies of mountains and crack them to get more mountains. Uh, usually that'll be enough. I, too, am personally a fan of when my one fetch land tends to just deal 18 damage. Sometimes it do be like that. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I don't think a combo necessarily has to go, you know, infinite. If it if it can just dome anybody for you know a, a reasonable amount, you know, it doesn't need to be infinite. It's still a way that unless you know you're playing against some life gain deck or something, it's still gonna be a game ender, which is the important thing. Life gain decks, I think, are the the one of the biggest reasons though to have combos. If you've never played up against tuned life gain deck, when they have like two hundred and fifty health like how do i get through it commander damage what if my commander's you know jace burns prodigy it's an o2 what if i don't have infect like and not that many people play infect so you might just lose to them gaining a ton of life all right so let's talk about combos in the context of rule zero and people oftentimes you know i don't know if you've seen this where they say at the store no infinite combos as a pretty blanket rule I can say that I have run into a specific uh, local game store for a commander night, and they did just say that, hey, we don't accept infinite combos here, and we don't want any of that. I was about to say something about your Mina and Den deck when you were talking about the no infinite combos at your game store, Austin. And oh, you, sure. you can show up with something that's you know brutally oppressive, like Mina and Den, that's not going infinite. Mina but, and you know, Den or Daxos, just like... Yeah, or Daxus or Saxic, it you know make make a point about it. I would like to make a point that I have never gone infinite with Zerdia uh, Enchanter in my life. That is true, and your Zerd deck is one of the most terrifying EDH decks I've ever played against. Dude, it makes me so happy whenever I get to play against people who don't know it, like what it does, and they don't kill Zer, and then I'm like, it is look, terrifying. Look, it's Chains of Mephistopheles. <laughs> Yeah, Shades be, of Ephistopheles. There can be decks that, that don't go, uh, they don't have infinite combos, can be much more brutal and oppressive than, you know, just having one. Talking about your point there, Tanner, I think that when people say no combos, what they mean to say is no CDH decks. Because Stacks decks don't have combos. A lot, there are many CDH decks. Most of them play combos, but I mean, the Blood Pod Stacks decks often don't they might have one as a finisher but that's not their game plan they're there to contamination lock you out of the game which is an entirely different thing and i think that by saying no combos it doesn't mean what they want it to mean yeah i i, I think that's fair because you know if i rolled up with my with my j stack or something you know there was a no combos thing would, would they be that upset if i you know put isochron scepter dramatic reversal together as like a plan c win con after i've already tried doing two other things anyways that wasn't the main focus of the deck, and sure, it has an infinite combo, but you know, it's not like you're saying it's not a CDH deck. Legitimately, yeah, they probably would not be okay with that. They would probably rather that you polymorph. Well, that's what I would like, try doing first in the first place, anyways. You know, the the combo is a plan B. I mean, sure, but these are people who feel that combos steal the game out of nowhere, and by the doing that, that you're kind of cheating them almost. Sure, but doesn't Blightsteel Colossus do the same thing? Eh, I, I, I feel like... And They'd again, probably not want you to play that either. But again, I, I'm not trying to defend that position. I, I still think like Dramatic Reversal is just as good of a combo as uh, Polymorphing into a Blightsteel. I feel personally, as a person who really enjoys constructing complex combos, arbitrary dex restrictions really inhibit your ability to create creative decks and when someone in your playgroup says oh we don't like infinite combos it really inhibits your ability 
to find interesting cars on Scryfall or the HREC and put them together in interesting ways because, uh-oh, you've created some sort of infinite combo. Yeah, and I think that creativity is honestly the best part of Commander. My Jace list looks nothing like your Jace list, Tanner, and that's part of the beauty. You know, we, we have so many, there's so many differences because it's a singleton format that, you know, when I play against someone else, even if we have the same commander, we might be playing totally different decks. Yeah, I mean, I love Commander for the fact that I, you know, it's the format where if there's some, you know, strange janky car that I just happen to like, I can actually, you know, play it and not be at an enormous disadvantage because, you know, even if it's an objectively bad card, it's only one out of 99 cards in my deck anyways. Absolutely. And you, can, you can get away with, you know, doing these fun things where, where, you know, you can make a fun deck that you really enjoy playing that's wacky that won't just, you know, lose every time like it might in other formats. For example, just... What other format am I going to be able to play five color spell shapers or four color baubles? There isn't one. I am doing my best here. I played five color baubles in modern. It, it wasn't that is true. at one point. That is true. You did do that. I'm sorry. It was viable at one point in another format. It was the meta. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, you know, EDH has a meta. There are definitely, like, meta commanders, which you see much more often, but you, you can still play, like, these fun, janky commanders that someone's never seen roll up to a table and still, you know, hold your own. Especially because of politics. Politics is honestly something that's, like, one of the great equalizers. I've seen people roll up to CEDH events with a pre-con, and he almost made it to the third round. He won the first round, actually, straight out of politics, just by convincing other people to not interact with this stuff, because, hey, I'm playing a pre-con. You should just interact with it. And everyone left him alone, and it became this weird stalemate where everyone used all their counter spells on each other, and then he played some big dragon and just beat him up, because most EDH de- most CDH decks can't beat just a big creature. And he actually won a round, which was just through straight politics. And I think that that's something that people underutilize as part of your removal package oh yeah i mean definitely having the having it not be a 1v1 format you know and having these other players you can interact with and make deals with it's a huge part of of you know playing the game and and being able to succeed is you know can you use your political skills to, to your to your advantage right on that note our next episode will probably be about politics because i think that it's a little different in a more high power group than a more casual group and we'll talk about our philosophy around that in the next episode until then i think that'll be it for today thank you for joining us thank you later